The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Thank you, Lord God. Good morning, church. It's really good to be together in the house. If you've uh, got your Bibles, please go ahead and grab those. This morning is week three in our short mini-series, our four-part series, which we've entitled Kingdom Generosity. And this morning, I want us to think about, and more importantly, get inspired about the kingdom value of being generous with our finances. Generous with our finances. Now, although, and I need to say this, don't I? Although some Christians get a bit turned off in terms of money, hearing sermons on money, And certainly many visitors to church can sometimes be suspicious about the church's motives in terms of money. We need to remember and realize that Jesus spoke about money a lot. In particular, the greed that's often attached to money. He spoke about money more than sex, lust, and adultery combined. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke alone... Jesus is constantly talking about money, how we're supposed to view money and how we're to handle our cash. And often when he taught on the subject, it wasn't very seeker-friendly, not seeker-friendly at all. On one particular occasion, recorded in Matthew 19, Jesus' words about money were so challenging that one young millionaire literally walked away from Jesus because he was too fond of his wealth. And so, no, here at PCC, we don't subscribe to weekly giving talks during the offering time. That's just bad taste. But that doesn't mean we won't speak about money because, as is often the case, a key indicator to whether our Christian lives are sincere or not is how we handle our cash, how we handle our money. As someone has rightly said, what we do or desire to do with our money can make or break our happiness for ever. And so with that sobering thought in mind, if you've got your Bibles, please grab those and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you've got your devices, locate those and find 2 Corinthians 8. We've got in set, sit in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, and it's here in these two chapters that the Apostle Paul is urgently encouraging these Corinthian believers to stick to a prior promise that they made to help needy Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering economic and social pressure and hardship because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so essentially in these two chapters, the Apostle Paul is saying to these believers, show me the money. And obviously that means for us, there's a lot for us to learn about money in general and about giving in particular. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're not going to read any scripture, we're going to move through it in this sermon, and this morning we're going to focus on two main areas, characteristics of Christian giving, and secondly, motivation. Characteristics basically answering the question, what does God-honoring giving look like? What does that entail? And motivations, what ought to be the motivating force for our giving, the thing that's going to endure Motivate us, move us to give generously. So characteristics and motivation, let's pray before we jump in. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this time together. And Lord, we come to you, the generous God. We come to you, the bountiful God. And we ask that this morning that you would, Lord God, so move by your Holy Spirit, Lord. That, Father, we would hear your word. That we would be doers of it and not just hearers of it, and the, the result of this word would be gospel transformation, Lord. The result would be 
kingdom generosity. That's our prayer. That's our aim. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So the question I want to pose from the get-go then is, what does God-honoring giving look like? What does God-honoring giving entail? Or to pose the question differently, what are some fundamental, irreducible characteristics of Christian giving? The Apostle Paul in these two chapters, 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, stresses the following four characteristics of Christian giving that we will do well to duplicate and imitate in our own Christian lives. Four characteristics. The first one is this. Our giving is to be voluntary, not enforced. It's to be voluntary, not enforced. And so Paul, writing to these Corinthian believers, he makes mention of another group of believers, the Macedonians. And he says this in verse 3 about their giving. He says, for I testify that they, namely the Macedonians, gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, and then he adds these four words, entirely on their own. And so this is what Paul is saying to these Corinthians. Hey, when we went to Macedonia, we didn't pile on the pressure by preaching highly emotive giving talks to pull their heartstrings. No, we just told them about the need in Jerusalem in the capital, and they gave of their own accord. They volunteered their cash. And then in chapter 9, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says these familiar words. He says that each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. And then what does he add? Not reluctantly or under what? Compulsion. That is kind of guns of the head kind of giving, you know, like externally manipulated by human beings. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. Look, listen. The reason why God is not pleased, it doesn't thrill the heart of God when we give under compulsion is because it's not the heart of God. That's why it doesn't thrill his heart. No one has to put a gun to God's temple and say, you've got to give because God is giving. That's his character. And so when he sees his character replicated and exhibited in the lives of his people, that causes his heart cheer. That causes his heart to sing and delight. This is how our giving is to be. It's to be voluntary. It's to be internally stimulated by the Spirit and not externally manipulated or coerced by others. Yeah? So that's the first characteristic. Number two, the second characteristic of our Christian giving is this. It needs to be generous, not stingy. It needs to be liberal, in other words, not reluctant. This is mainly the, the main point of these two chapters. He talks about generosity again and again. For example, he turns to the example of the Macedonians again in verse 2. He says, in the midst, and this is crazy, listen to what he says here. This is so illogical and very countercultural. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty whirled up in what? In rich generosity. Now, this is insane. This, this was the work of the Holy Spirit because basically this verse could be translated, their exuberant joy, that is their exuberant joy in Jesus, their hearts had been melted by Christ, they were so captivated by him that they had this exuberant joy and their rock bottom poverty combined to overflow in rich generosity. That's staggering. That's so counter-cultural, so counter-Australian. And then in chapter 9, verses 5 through 15, the Apostle Paul details again and again and again how these believers, these Corinthian believers, were to give generously. And so he says in verse 5, 
So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then, he goes on to say, it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given, like Ebenezer Scrooge or something like that. Verse 6, remember this, whoever sows, that is, gives sparingly, whoever sows and gives like a sting, in other words, will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Drop down to verse 8. And God, listen to this promise, this is profound, and God is able to bless you abundantly, right, spiritually, materially, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, underlined need, he's not talking about greeds here, he's talking about the bare essentials, all we need, you will abound in something, every good work. And so in this verse, there's no hint of lack, but for what purpose? Well, verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Look, church, listen. God does this. He gives so that we, in turn, can do this. He blesses so that we can be channels of blessing, not so that we can be cul-de-sacs and just accumulate, accumulate, and pad out our lives with more pointless human comforts. No, no, he blesses so that we can bless. Remember Jesus' words recorded in Acts 20, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And yet sometimes I think the way we live our lives, we believe the reverse of that, that it's more blessed to receive than it is to give. Some years ago, John Piper, many of you would know that name, he said these challenging words, and these cut. You're going to feel the pinch of these words. He says, quote, If God blesses us financially, it's to increase our standard of giving, not our standard of living. If God prospers us so that we have a greater surplus, it's for the spread of the gospel. It's for the spread of the gospel and for the alleviation of suffering, not for more pointless human comforts. Who's feeling guilty? It's not enough. Guilt's not enough. And we're going to come back to this at the end of the sermon. That's the, the second characteristic. It needs to be generous. Our giving needs to be generous, not stingy. Characteristic number three. Our giving is to be deliberate, not random. It's to be intentional, in other words, not ad hoc. Again, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, the Apostle Paul says, each of you should give what you have what? decided in your heart to give. That's the language of intentionality. That's the language of discipline. That's the language of purpose. Again, most things in the Christian life and life in general needs intentionality. True? What about fasting, for example? Right? If, if you don't plan to fast, if you're not intentional in terms of fasting, it's likely that you're never going to fast because we all love food too much, right? We have taste buds. We love food. What about exercise? You're going to love this one. Exercise. Not many of us are hardwired to enjoy exercise. We need to be intentional when it comes to working out. We need to be disciplined and, and, and deliberate. That's why a lot of people, you know, every second person has a treadmill for sale on Gumtree, right? Because they had a great idea. They had a great idea, but they didn't stick with that idea. They weren't intentional. And if they're not selling on eBay, well, it's doubling up as a clothes rack at home, all right? It's the same when it comes to giving. 
this grace of giving, we need to be deliberate. I've, I've learned in my Christian life that it's the organized that often gives rise to the organic, that it's the intentional that often gives rise to the inspirational. But most of the time, I think as Christians, we're waiting to be inspired, 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 when what it needs is a bit of discipline and intentionality. Because if we remain ad hoc in terms of our giving, it's likely that we won't give as much as we should, or we just won't give at all. That's the challenge. And so maybe a point of application for us as a church following this series and following this sermon is to sit down with our finances and to have a intentional budget put together in terms of how much we're going to give for the spread of the gospel and for the alleviation of suffering. And when you do that, let me help you and let me encourage you to think about two important considerations when you give deliberately. Number one, give towards gospel-centered ventures and church-focused ventures. That is gospel-centered. We want to be, don't we, as a believer, as Christians, holistic in our approach. We do want to care for people's bodies. We want to care about them holistically, emotionally, psychologically. But people's greatest need is spiritual. They need Jesus. They need the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so without giving, let us be wise, let us be discerning and deliberate and give towards gospel-centered ventures, also church-centered ventures. It's never wise to bypass God's primary agent in the world for change. And his primary agent is not the Rotary Club, although I've got nothing against the Rotary Club, but the church. The church is God's plan A, and so this is why I appreciate and value organizations and charities like uh, Samaritan's Purse, amen, later standing on a chair celebrating, and Compassion, because they're they're, they're gospel-centered and church-focused, and so it's good to be generous, but we need to be deliberate as well and wise and strategic in how we give, yeah? So our giving needs to be deliberate, not random. Number four. Our giving is to be sensible, I like this one, not stupid. <laughs> it needs to be sensible, not stupid. Paul highlights this point for us in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 8. He says, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Verse 12. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what? One has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not, listen to his words, this is wise, pastoral counsel here. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Essentially, what the Apostle Paul is telling us to do here is to give in proportion to our income. In other words, God doesn't command us or expect us to give what we don't have but only to give joyfully and deliberately and generously what we can honestly afford. Now, I know that that term honestly is highly subjective, and we need to remember that our hearts often deceive us, right? And that we often rationalize too much investment into our own lives. But that being said, we need to give what we can honestly afford. I heard just the other day of a true story, a true account 
uh, of a young woman, a young mum, single mum, and her ex-husband had really left her high and dry, wasn't supplying her with any funds, not helping out with the kids at all, and so things were really, really tight for her. But she heard of a need at church. Funny enough, they were raising funds for a new building project. It's not PCC, I'm not talking about PCC here. And so she wanted to give. She had that desire. She had decided in her heart to give. And so she took them out of home and around the dinner table with her young children, I think they were eight, nine or something like that, she put it before them. And one of her kids said, Mum, we we haven't got much to give, but we do have cable TV. And so maybe we should unsubscribe Sky and with the money saved, give towards the building project. True story. And she said, that's so sensible Let's do that. And that's exactly what she did. It was sacrificial and it was sensible. It wasn't stupid. She didn't say to her kids, hey, it's going to be beans on toast for the next three years. All right, we're going to give no matter what. It was sensible. It was logical. And that's what God calls us to do. And so depending on your income, give, give. If you earn a lot, here's the word, give a lot. Give a lot. Jesus didn't tithe himself, right? If he did, we wouldn't be saved. He gave himself entirely for us. And so we too in turn need to give with that kind of heart. We need to give in proportion to our income. So those are the four characteristics, the main characteristics that the Apostle Paul highlights in these two chapters. Our giving is to be what? Come on. Voluntary. Needs to be generous. Come on, Tim. Needs to be deliberate. Thank you, brother listening, and it needs to be sensible. Now the question becomes, okay, considering all that, these gospel characteristics, these Christian characteristics of giving, what's to be the motivating force? What's going to empower us to give this way, to live this way? As I mentioned, is it guilt? No way, not in a million years. Guilt is a little like sugar. Right? If you want a bit of a boost of energy, what do you do? You reach for a gummy bear or a lolly snake and you pop it in and it gives you a spike. It gives you a sugar high. But we all know what's on the other side of that sugar spike, right? Sugar comas. We feel depleted. We feel lethargic. Well, guilt is like that in our Christian lives. Guilt may, may get you started. Gets you started, like, you know, especially when you read John Piper or, or A.W. Tozer, you kind of feel hot under the collar, you feel the pinch, and it kind of gets you started. But guilt won't sustain us for the long haul. Something else is needed. And what is that? What is to be the motivating factor in our giving and in our Christian lives? Well, let me come at the question this way. Let me pose another question, and I think really gets to the core of the issue. What is it that often hinders Christian generosity? What is it? What is it that often strangles and stifles financial generosity? The the person who comes to the front and gives me the right answer can have this 50 bucks. You didn't come forward, Natalie. Baron. (laughs) My money's safe with me. I'll preach a sermon on deception some other time. It's the greeny-eyed monster, greed. It's greed. Some of you are thinking, oh, man, I should have gone to the front. It's greed. And if you would have come to the front, I'd have put it back in my pocket and said, go away, greedy. All right? 
It's greed. But here's the thing with greed. It's so hard to detect in our hearts. It's so hard to see and notice in our own lives. I heard of a pastor, a U.S. pastor, some years ago, he decided to do a seven-week series, teaching series, with the guys in his church, and it was on the seven deadly sins, of which greed is one. And before he launched the teaching series, his wife said to him, I bet you any money, ironic, I bet you that when you get to week four, the greed talk, you'll have your lowest attendance. And guess what? He had his lowest attendance. The guys came out, you know, when he was talking about anger. Oh, yeah, I've got issues with anger. And lust, yeah, I've got issues with lust. And laziness, yeah, pride, yeah. But greed, nah, I don't think we have issues with greed. And so they didn't go. Look, to this day, I've never had anyone come to me and say, Pastor Lewis, I've got a confession to make. I just want to get it off my chest. I've been carrying it for so long. I spend too much money on myself. There it is. I've got it off my chest. That's ne- I've never, ex- never experienced that. And, I, and I'm not banking on ever experiencing that because it's so subtle. It's so subconscious. And this is the reason why, church. Are you ready? It's because often we don't compare ourselves with the rest of the world. But we compare ourselves with those in our social economic bracket. And because there are many people within our particular bracket that earn more money than we do, they have finer clothes, they go on finer holidays, they eat in finer restaurants, we think that our means and our income is moderate in comparison to them. And so we always want to keep up with them. And we never think about the world at large. If we were to compare ourselves with the rest of the world, we would realize that we are in the top 1% in terms of prosperity. We are wealthy. And you see, people in the world are not fooled. When they come to Australia, they see that we are so preoccupied with stuff and that we have a lot. And so here's the thing. Here's the challenge. The Apostle Paul says that this preoccupation is a form of idolatry. This preoccupation with stuff is a form of idolatry because he says in Colossians 3.5 that greed is idolatry. That's the challenge. Greed is idolatry. And so if we're going to make any progress in terms of generosity, we need to deal with idolatry in our hearts. Pastor and author Tim Keller, household name here, at PCC. He wrote a very important book a number of years ago uh, called Counterfeit Gods, and I highly recommend it. But in the book, he explains that there are two types of idol. This is going to be really helpful and maybe a little challenging. Two types of idol. There are surface idols, and there are root, deep-seated idols. Surface and deep idols. Surface idols are basically good things that we make ultimate things that end up being bad things because we make them gods. And so such things are family, health, health or career or your children and, of course, money. And yet Keller says, and he argues quite um, pervasively, that if we are to deal with these surface-level idols, we need to go deeper into our hearts to the hidden idols, these deep idols, which are, according to Keller, comfort, control, approval, and power. And what these 
deep-seated idols seek to do is they seek fulfillment through these surface idols. And so to be very practical, let me explain how this plays out in our lives in terms of money. So if someone, if a Christian has a, an idol, a deep idol of control, the reason why they want money is because they want security. They want to control their world. They want to control their lives. They don't basically spend money on themselves. They just store it away for a rainy day because they want to feel secure. They want to feel safe in this unsafe world. That's the reason why they love money. What about if someone has a deep idol of approval? Well, the reason why this person wants money is because they want to spend money on themselves in order to make themselves more beautiful or attractive so that they fit in, so they have that social status, so they're a part of the group, they're a part of the crowd. Can you see how this plays out? And so opposite ends, really, or seemingly. Someone who has control, they, they just save. Someone who has approval, this idol, they spend heaps on themselves. What about if someone has a deep idol of power, power, then the reason why this person wants money is because they want to dominate others. They want to look down their noses. They want to control. They want to manipulate. They want to feel superior to others. That's why they want money. You see, these deep-seated idols result in bondage, bondage to greed and bondage to the love of money because we need to have these deep-seated idols fulfilled. We need to serve them and we need to obey them. And so if we're going to see any progress in terms of generosity, because this is the main reason why most of us don't give as much as we ought to, is because of these deep-seated idols, then these deep idols need to be decisively dealt with. They need to be removed and eliminated from our hearts. And what does that? Well, the New Testament knows of only one answer. Only one answer that can deal with this heart level transformation, and that is faith in the gospel. It's faith in the gospel. Essentially, what Paul gets at in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, this is to be our enduring motivation and the beauty of our lives. It's the gospel. Listen to how he puts it. He puts it in financial terms. He says, for you know, I want this to really penetrate this morning. For you know, he's talking about heart knowledge, deep knowledge that gets underneath these root idols and has the power to uproot them. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Listen, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that Jesus, the Son of God, had infinite wealth. And if he had of kept hold of it, we would have died in our spiritual poverty. And so that was the choice for him to become poor so that we might become rich or for him to remain rich and for us to remain poor and die in our sins or for him to give himself in poverty so that we could become rich, be forgiven, be adopted into the family of God and ultimately be made God's treasure. And we know what he did. He gave of himself. As I mentioned, he didn't tithe himself. He gave himself completely for us to win us back, to make us his treasure. And so in turn, he would become our treasure. Let me conclude with this. Tim Keller writes this, and I want this to hit home. Holy Spirit, would you do a deep work in our hearts? He says these words. When you see him, namely Jesus 
dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. Money, he says, will cease to be the currency of your significance and security. And you will want to bless others with what you have to the degree that you grasp the gospel, the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. Money will have no dominion over you. Listen to these words. Think on his costly grace until it changes you into a generous person. You see, that's what the cross communicates. That's what the gospel says. It says, hey, you don't need to try and work up security for yourself by having money because you are secure in Jesus. That's what the gospel and the cross communicates and sings over your life, that you are safe in the palm of his hand, that he, through the gospel, has promised you this reward, this inheritance in glory, that the greatest super fund and even the Swiss bank account is dirt when you compare it to that. You don't need approval. Because you have it in Jesus. You have his medals pinned to your chest that you are fully loved and fully adopted and fully accepted in Christ. You have a status in him that money could never buy. And so the more this gospel penny drops and continues to drop in our hearts, we will be in turn generous. This is how the motivation structures of our heart changes. It's when the gospel drops, 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 melts, 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 and penetrates our heart. The answer is not guilt. The answer is to meditate on Christ's costly grace until it makes us a church, a people that is generous. All about kingdom generosity. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray.